This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. I want to continue the message that we began this morning uh, about divine healing. And I'm not sure whether I'll even go further maybe next week because as I'm doing this, it's thrown up more questions to me. And I assume that the same questions will be thrown up to you in your own mind. So we'll, we'll maybe even continue next week, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But uh, firstly, I want to talk to you tonight about one of the most used objections uh, for divine healing among Christians today. So come with me, please, to... 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. (coughs) 2 Corinthians 12, reading from verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, he's talking about himself, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I desire to boast, I would not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure." Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong." Amen. Now, there are many, many devout believers who sincerely believe. I'm not questioning at all their sincerity in this belief. That, like Paul, they say, that they should suffer uh, their illness or their sickness. And that they really should not be uh, asking God to be relieved from that. And... uh, because if Paul suffered from it and he wasn't relieved from it and God's grace was sufficient for it, well then I should be the same. And that's how it goes, something like that. But is that really what Paul meant when he talked about his thorn in the flesh? Is that really what he's saying? Has it anything to do with sickness at all? Because notice the word sickness is not used. Or disease. So how did they come up with this? Well, first of all, the expression thorn in the flesh 
It was never used in either the Old or New Testaments except in the figure of sense. It was a figure of speech. And never once was it ever used as sickness. Never one time. And each and every time it is used, it plainly tells us what the thorn in the flesh was. For example, Numbers 33, 25, it says that the inhabitants of Canaan were thorns in the flesh of the people of Israel. Joshua 23, 13, something similar. The term used again in relation to the heathen people of Canaan. The Canaanites were thorns in the flesh to the people of God. In both these occasions, notice that the thorns in the flesh were personalities. Personalities, not sickness, not disease, but personalities. And Paul clearly tells us what his thorn was. A personality, the messenger of Satan. And the word messenger is from the Greek word angelos, and it is mentioned 188 times throughout the whole of Scripture. And it translates 180, 181 times as angel and seven times as messenger. And in all those cases, it's talking about a personality, either an angel of God or an angel of the devil or a messenger, a person, a personality. But never, ever was it deemed a sickness. And so Paul clearly states here that his thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan. And then he goes on to say what the messenger Satan was sent to do. And again, he's very specific. It was sent to buffet him. And the word buffet means blow after blow after blow. And it's a word that's used quite a lot. It's also used in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Jesus at his trials was buffeted. He was slapped. He was beaten. And it's the same word, buffeted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, if I may just turn to that for a second. So we need to be clear about what the apostle is meaning rather than put our interpretation on it. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11. Read for verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. We are distinguished. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed, unbeaten, buffeted, that means, and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the offscarring of all things until now. And then again, in, uh, over in Peter, in 1 Peter 2.20, again the same terminology is used. And each time it is used, it's obvious what it's talking about. Being beaten being physically hounded and persecuted and hurt 
and beaten, buffeted. So when Paul talks about being buffeted, the messenger Satan, to buffet me, it's the same word he uses. And it means the same thing. Nobody other than Christ was buffeted, beaten more than the Apostle Paul. Everywhere that Paul went, this messenger of Satan buffeted him. Everywhere he went, there was problems for him. There was trouble stirred up. This demonic spirit, this messenger of Satan worked through people against him. In fact, he said that wherever I go, whatever city I go to, chains and bonds await me. He knew it was coming. At one point he prayed, he didn't want it anymore. Who would? The Lord says, no, my grace will help you in this. So he knew what was ahead of him. And it was true everywhere you read about Paul. He's in trouble. And he's been in jail and he's been beaten and he's been persecuted and despised and all the rest of it. In 2 Corinthians 12 and 2 Corinthians 6, uh, we see that we see that the same thing. And, and he lists some of the stuff that he went through. And when you read it, you can see what he's talking about. The buffeting of this messenger of Satan that was against him. And so nowhere is he even suggesting it was sickness or disease. So why do people say the one thing about this thorn that Paul suffered that Paul didn't say? Why did they choose the one thing that he didn't talk about? People say, well, it was some kind of eye disease that he was going blind, that it was glaucoma or, or something relating to his eyes. Why did they say that? Well, in Galatians 6 and 11, and I'll let me read this first of all from the New King James, which I usually use, and I'll read it from you from the authorized version. New King James, Galatians 6 and 11, see with what large letters I have written to you in my own hand. So they say, well, you see, he's writing large letters in his own hand here. These large letters must be because he was half blind. The authorized version says, ye see how large a letter. Now, that's a little bit different, isn't it? You see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. You know, most of Paul's letters, he dictated them. And others wrote them for him. But in this particular instance, he writes it himself. And in those days, they used unseals, which are like capital letters that we would use, only much, much bigger, sometimes like an inch big. And so there's nothing in this that he's referring to. He's got an eye problem where he can't see. You remember on the road to Damascus when he was going out to persecute Christians? And Jesus met him there, and he was blind. He was blinded for three days until Ananias came as God instructed him, he laid hands on him and he could see again. Don't you think God would have made a good business of his eyes? <laughs> but you see, there's other scriptures like Galatians 4.15. I bear your record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and would have given them to me. And so who, people who believe that Paul had an eye problem, they, they jump on that and say, well, there you are. You see, that's the evidence there. These people, they looked at him and they felt so sorry that they felt, oh, well, if I could give you my eyes. 
Somebody says, you know, the man with the hammer thinks everything's a nail. <laughs> you can just read into everything. But that, that's a figure of speech. It's like saying, you know, so-and-so, they're so kind, they would give you their right arm. It's a figure of speech. I'm going to cut off the right arm and give it to you. It's a figure of speech. And this was a figure of speech. And then some will say, well, well Paul prayed three times for his sickness to be removed and God didn't remove it, so I should just be the same. I prayed lots of times, so it hasn't gone away, so uh, I suppose then I should be like Paul, I should just continue to be sick and just the grace of God will help me through. No, Paul didn't pray three times for his sickness to be removed. He never mentioned sickness. He prayed for this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan to be removed. I mean, who, who would want to be beaten everywhere you place, every place you go? Who would want to be beaten? So you can understand why he prayed for that to be removed. And God says, no, I'm not going to remove that. Everywhere you go, chains and bonds will await you. But my grace will help you, will overcome that. And it actually did. And so Paul actually gives the reason why he got the thorn in the flesh in the first place. Lest I should be exalted above measure because of the abundance of the revelations given to me. So if we're going to claim that we have got Paul's thorn in the flesh, then we also need to claim the abundance of revelations. And I don't think any of us could claim that. Here's a man who was caught up into the third heaven who saw things that he could not even tell to another human being. And God allowed, lest he be puffed up with pride, God allowed those beatings and those people who came against him continually in order to keep his feet firmly on the ground, that he would need God's grace and God's strength. In fact, Paul, in the end, he gloried in his buffetings. He gloried in his weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Most gladly, therefore, I will glory in my infirmities. Galatians 4, 13, You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached to you. That's another one they, they try to throw in to say, well, it must have been a sickness. But infirmity there has nothing to do with being sick. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was with you in weakness. That's another one they say, well, there you see, he was physically, well, hold on a minute here. The weakness doesn't necessarily mean being sick. Second Corinthians 10 and 10, that says, his bodily presence is weak. Paul had a powerful reputation as a mighty, mighty man of God. But actually, if you met him, he just looked quite ordinary. He didn't come in like some great superstar that's strutting about the stages today in the church. He just looked an ordinary little man as he, as he walked about. And in fact, if he did look weak, who could blame him after all that he had been through? The shipwrecks, the beatings, the fastings, the starvings, huh? all of that, the jail time, all the travel, everything he did. He says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> this man had been through the mill. So if he didn't look that impressive, don't worry about it. He wasn't worried about it. He'd got a mighty God. That's who he was serving. 
2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, God says, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The word infirmity that Paul used a lot, it's the same in Romans 8, 26, when he says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, or weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. In Hebrews 11 and 34, speaking about the great, the heroes of faith, says, who out of weakness were made strong. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, speaking about Jesus. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. Imagine if every time we read weakness and infirmity, you were to replace it with sickness and disease. How would that sound? Hmm? Likewise, the Spirit also helps our sicknesses and diseases, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Does that make much sense? Those heroes of faith who out of sickness and disease were made strong? No, it doesn't. Even worse, you can't replace that when it talks about Christ on the cross. So we need to be careful that we don't read into things that's not there, that Paul is not saying at all. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's the same word throughout. So if the word weak, if that meant he was sick, then surely the word strong would mean that he was well. And if, if we were to glory in our sickness, then why in the world would we try to get rid of it? And almost everybody that you know who's suffering will try to get rid of it. And who could blame them? But if you're convinced God has given me this, then why in the world would you want to get rid of it? If this is somehow to, said this morning to teach us of a lesson or to humble us or whatever the case may be, why would you want to get rid of that? So what was Paul saying? He was expressing his own weaknesses, infirmities as a natural man, as a simple man. As a man, he was nothing. Although there was a time when he thought he was everything. There was a time when he thought he was really something. And he says, I have given all of that, I count all that as nothing that I may win Christ. And so, as an ordinary man, he no longer counted all of that academia that he was famous for as a Pharisee and all that stuff. He says, I count that as nothing. I'm just an ordinary man. But he had an extraordinary God. And he lived for God and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. And so now he's completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit, not in his education, not in his academia, not in the fact that he was a Pharisee. It means nothing to him anymore. I'm completely dependent on the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to do what I do. That's what he's really saying. And God was saying, my grace will be enough for you. 
No matter what you go through, no matter the hardships and all the struggles and all of that, and in the end, he gave his life. He lost his life in the end. But God says, my grace will be more than enough for you to carry that through. So where we get sickness out of that, I just, I just do not know. But there you have it. That's one of the biggest arguments that's used today. Let me give you three reasons why some people say that Jesus healed the sick. Uh, this is for people who argue that healing is no longer to be expected. Uh, the Lord did it then, but he's not doing it now. And so why did he, did it in the, why did he do it in the first place? Well, so here's, here's what they say, why he did it in the first place. First of all, to demonstrate his power. Secondly, to prove his claim to deity. And thirdly, to introduce the preaching of the gospel. There's the three reasons. To demonstrate his power, to prove his claim to deity, to introduce the preaching of the gospel. Now, regarding the first one, to demonstrate his power, if Jesus had wanted to simply demonstrate his power, all he would have to have done was just heal one or two people. That's all he would need to do. But he healed everybody. <coughs> Thousands were healed. And, and if, he, if he really wanted just to show his power, to demonstrate that, all he would have to do was take some of the hardest cases and heal one or two of them. But he healed everyone that came to him. The lepers, the cripples, the deaf, the blind, the dumb, the incurable. Even he raised three from the dead. He had all power in heaven and earth. But just if he just wanted to demonstrate that, it would have been a very selfish reason just to demonstrate all that power for himself. But he did it that the, that the Father may be glorified. That was the main reason he did it, that the Father may be glorified. He says, what I speak, the Father speaks. The works that I do, the Father does. And so... It wasn't just that he might demonstrate his power. His power was very evident and obviously demonstrated. But that wasn't the sole reason why he did that. Regarding the second argument, to prove his deity. Now, there's, there's some truth in this. There's a measure of truth in this. Remember in Matthew 9, <laughs> in Jesus, he healed the man who was paralytic. But before he healed him, before he did anything, when he looked at him, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And those scribes and Pharisees were standing there. And they were saying within themselves, This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God only? And Jesus looked up and he says, He knew their hearts. And he says, Why does, it, why does evil thoughts arise in your heart? Listen to what he says. For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk and go into your house. And he arose and departed to his house. So in that sense, it's true in that sense that he did show forth his deity. That he was God in human flesh. They says only God can forgive sins which is right. 
And so he proved to them that he was God. Is it easier to forgive sins or to say, take up your bed and walk? So he said, take up your bed and walk, showing them who he really was, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Christ of God. And in Matthew 11, you remember how John the Baptist was in jail. He sent a delegation to Jesus saying, are you he that should come or do we look for another? And what did Jesus do? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Son of God? Or do we look for another? And go tell John, and he mentions how the blind receive their sight, how the cripples walk, how the lepers are cleansed. So in that sense, he is proving who he is, his deity. But that's not the only reason why he healed the sick. In fact, in spite of all the miracles that Jesus performed and all of the healings that he did, in the end, very, very, very few people believed that he was the Son of God, that he was the Christ. In the end, very few believed that. Even his own disciples. They deserted him. They lied about him. They betrayed him. They ran at his greatest hour of need. Even his own brothers and sisters did not believe that he was the Son of God until he was resurrected. And so all of those miracles and all of those healings that could so easily prove his deity, in the end, hardly anyone believed that he was the Son of God. And so it wasn't just for that reason to prove that he was the Son of God. Regarding the third reason which is the most prominent one, to introduce the preaching of the gospel. Many, many, many sincere believers who love the Lord with all of their hearts, not doubting at all their place in Christ or their love for the Lord, but they sincerely believe that all those miracles and all of those healings, the only reason was for Christ to introduce the gospel. And once the gospel had been introduced, and once the apostles died off, We've got the full canon of the word. That is all we need. That supernatural miracles and healings are really not for today. We have other means today. So we shouldn't really be looking for that or looking to that. And that's the argument. Yes, of course, miracles did draw multitudes to Christ, and they still draw a lot of people today. But Jesus was never impressed by crowds. Never was. In fact, when he had a big crowd one day, because they all came when they heard he was in town because they wanted to see a miracle. Who doesn't want to see a miracle? They certainly did. But Jesus began to preach a hard message. And they began to melt away. To the point where he said to his disciples, will you also go away? There wasn't many left. <coughs> And so the argument that this was just simply back then in Christ's day and the apostles' day to introduce the gospel, but we don't need that anymore because we've got the word of God complete and that's all we need. But there's no scriptural evidence for it. There's no historical evidence for it. Let me give you some of the biblical reasons why Jesus healed the sick. First of all, because of the promises that are in God's Word. 
Matthew 8, 16 and 17, we read it this morning. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet himself took our infirmities, and he bore our sicknesses. So Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament. And there's many, many, many of them. And Jesus was fulfilling them by doing the works of God and by doing mighty miracles and seeing great healings. Secondly, that he might reveal his will. The leprous man, we said this morning, the only person ever in all of Jesus' ministry to say, is it your will to heal me? Just one out of all the multitudes. And Jesus says, I will. I am willing. I want to. So that revealed his will. Has his will changed? I don't think so. To show forth the works of God in, in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9. Of course, you know all of these stories very well. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And by the way, that opens up another series of questions about what causes sickness. That's maybe something we need to look at as well, and maybe even next week. Who did sin this man or his parents? Obviously, they felt uh, that sin was the, the complete cause, the total cause of all sicknesses. And there's some instances where it is the cause, and Jesus made that clear where it was. But listen, Jesus answered and said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. That doesn't mean he was saying they were sinless, but it means that any sins they did commit certainly didn't cause this man to be blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but, but, and it's a big but, but, that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, the night comes when no one can work. So Jesus has taken this opportunity to heal this blind man, to do the works of him who sent me, to do the Father's works. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground. He made clay with his saliva. He anointed the eyes of the blind with the clay. He said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And you know how the rest of the story goes. And so, this was an opportunity to glorify God, to show forth the works of God. In John 11, you remember the raising from the dead of Lazarus. When Jesus heard that he was sick, in John 11 and 4, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. When was God glorified in that story? When Lazarus was sick or when Lazarus was raised from the dead? I can tell you it wasn't the former. Because whenever he took sick, seriously ill, his sister sent for Jesus, and their hope was high. 
Jesus, they had not a doubt in their mind that he would come to them because he was their dearest friend and Jesus had spent many happy hours in that home so they had no doubt about that. Their hopes were high. But Jesus didn't come. And now they're in despair and they're confused and they're not a little upset because when Jesus eventually did come, they said to him, if you had have come... In other words, if you had to come, we sent for you. Our brother would not have died. That's what they were saying. I don't know what tone of voice they said it, but I could imagine there was an edge to the tone of voice. And so there was no glory at that point. It's only when Jesus raised him from the dead. And that's when the glory came. And so... Because of the promises of God's word, also he might reveal his will, show the works of God, because of his compassion. More than half a dozen times, when you read it through the ministry of Jesus, it says he was moved with compassion. And he had compassion on them. At least six times it says that. And so, he had all the power on heaven and on earth at his disposal. But none of that would have availed if it wasn't for his compassion. It wasn't his power that moved him. It was his compassion that moved him. He knew he had all power. But that wasn't the thing that moved him. It was the fact that he loved and had compassion on the people. And that's what drew him to the people to cause them to be well and to heal them. And then fifthly, because of faith. Sometimes it's the faith of others he responds to. In Matthew chapter 8, I know that you know all of these portions of Scripture. But it does no harm to look at them. Chapter 8, verse 5 of Matthew. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, no, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness, will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth? Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so be it done unto you. And his servant was healed that same hour. So Jesus took this man's faith who was believing for another, and he responded to that. He'll take faith where he finds it. In John chapter 4, Verse 46, 
So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew it was at that same hour in which Jesus said, Your son lives. And he himself believed on his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. And so there's another instance where he took the faith of someone who was believing for another. And he responded to that faith. Like the four men who lowered the paralytic down through the roof when Jesus saw their faith. Not just the man's faith, but he saw their faith. <coughs> the Syrophoenician woman that we read coming because of her little daughter. And when Jesus, right there and then, told her, that spirit was gone. And so, sometimes the Lord responds to the faith of somebody who's believing for another. Sometimes it's the individual's own faith. The woman with the issue of blood. She said within herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. That was her own faith. She was believing for herself, for no one else but her. And it was her faith. And it really moved Jesus, didn't it? He stood still. Who touched me? And she was completely and utterly healed. The two blind men in Matthew 9, Jesus said unto them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched her eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done unto you. The ten lepers who came to Jesus, and Jesus said, Go your way and show yourself to the priest as a testimony. And as they went, they were healed. When Jesus said, Go your way, nothing had changed at that point. They were just as full as leprosy as before he said it. And it was only as they went. When they used their faith as they went, somewhere along that journey, suddenly they looked at themselves and they were completely and totally cleansed. So what about all those who prayed for healing and didn't get it? Any pastor has pastored any length of time will tell you about the people they buried. Who, as far as you could tell, were believing. But it didn't happen. 
What are the people who are still praying and still haven't got healed? Lots of those, aren't there? What about ourselves who do believe in God, who believe that God is able, who believe that God is willing, but still suffer as others? See, these are all questions that arise in the mind, aren't they? There's not a one of you that hadn't thought of these before. So while we have no problem believing that God can and God does, but is he willing to do it for me? That's the big issue, isn't it? So what are we going to base our faith on? Are we going to faith on, base it on the experience of others or even ourselves in the past? Or are we going to base it on the revealed word of God? Because this is the will of God. And at the end of the day, as believers, we have to believe the word of God. There'll be plenty of opportunities to contradict the word of God. There'll be plenty of opportunities for you to feel that's not working. But what are we going to base it on? How we feel? What's happened to others? What's happened to ourselves in the past? Are we going to base it on the revealed will of God? I think this is the only thing we can truly believe in, really, isn't it? Feelings come, feelings go, Luther said, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. So where are we tonight? Are we believing? Are we trusting? Maybe it hasn't arrived yet, hasn't happened yet. But are we still believing? Are we reading the scriptures and saying, Lord, that's what your word says. This is how I feel, but that's what your word says. And sometimes there's a big gap between this is how I feel and this is what your word says, isn't there? Let's be honest about that. So what are we going to do? Are we going to say, well, I'll just go by my feelings? Or will it go by the word of God? No, we're going to go by the word of God. Or regardless of the feelings, we'll go by the word of God. And when you get right down to it, that's what has to happen, isn't it? Jesus said on more than one occasion, do you believe? Do you believe? Do I believe? That's what he said and several times. Because the reason why he did that, and I'm going to get ahead of myself because this is one of the things we go into next week, is because... Oftentimes, we want to put the emphasis and the responsibility and the onus completely in him. So he turns it back and says, do you believe? What do you believe? Do you believe I can do this? So then the onus comes back on us again for to use the faith that we've got. Say, David, I don't feel I've got very much faith, but faith is faith, isn't it? Faith is faith. Faith is like gold. Gold is gold. You may have much, you may have little, but it's still gold, isn't it? And a grain of faith, like a mustard seed, Jesus said, is enough to move a mountain. So it doesn't have to be a great faith. It can be a little faith in a great God. And that's what can do it, isn't it? So we're going to pray. I know we prayed this morning, but we're going to pray. 
And then I think maybe next Sunday morning, God willing, we'll have a look at this again. We'll go a little bit further because I know these are questions that we wrestle with and struggle with at times. So we need to try to find some answers from the Word of God. Amen? So will you stand with me, please? Blessed be your name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, in these last moments of this service tonight, If you feel that you've got a need that you want us to join with you, I've got a little bottle of oil and I want to anoint you with oil. James 5 talks about anointing with oil. There's nothing magical about oil, but it's scriptural to do it. I know we prayed for one another this morning, but it just may be tonight that maybe you say, David, will you pray for me tonight and anoint me with oil? And we'll believe together that God is going to do something. He's going to touch your life. Minister to you. Lord, your word is truth. Your word is truth. It cannot fail. <coughs> and you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You have not changed. You will not change. Your word has not changed. Your word will not change. So, Lord, tonight we're going to believe your word. And we're going to trust it. Lord, you're here by your Holy Spirit. We have met in your name, and you are here by your Spirit. And we believe that you're going to touch and bring life and cure and health in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.